So our passage this morning threatens to throw a wrench in the lens through which we've been using to look at the gospel of Luke this year. You know, we've been searching for the reasons why this Jesus would have been compelling uh, for people who would have thought these accounts would have brought them certainty, as Luke promised they would to young Theophilus. But here at the end of his life, at the very sort of time in which you would think that he would be heroically and, and bravely facing down a doom that even he knew was coming and invited, you don't get the kind of inv- vision you would expect, do you? Think about the deaths of the leaders of the great world religions. You know, Moses, the founder of Judaism, was old and buried by God in a mysterious place. Uh, The Buddha was 80 years old and died surrounded by his disciples, a success. Confucius was 72 years old and dies in his hometown with all of his followers around him. Even Mohammed, the great leader of Islam, dies blissfully in the arms of his wife. Jesus? He's 33 years old, utterly abandoned by his friends, condemned by his enemies, rejected by his own father, and ready to die the most shameful death that you could during that particular era, crucifixion. You can understand why other religious leaders died the way they did, because it's as if their lives seem to prove that their religion works, and people follow them. Let's face it, inspirational deaths... Uh, They seem like they're necessary for the religion to root it in the heroism of of, of its followers. The more bravely they die, the more power the movement has. You know, in 2011, there was an article in the Bleacher Report about Jimmy Valvano. You know, Valvano was the famous coach of the NC State uh, Wolfpack in the very early 80s who, who orchestrated one of the most unlikely Cinderella stories in all of college basketball history where his team went all the way to the championship to face what was at that time one of the most powerful college basketball teams ever assembled, the Houston Cougars, and also had what I argue is the greatest nickname for any college basketball team ever, Phi Slamma Jamma. Spectacular name. But of course, you know, this, uh, the Valvano sort of scratched and clawed his team all the way to the finals and won the championship you know, in the most dramatic of fashions. Well, sadly, years later, Valvano contracts terminal cancer. And after a couple of years of fighting and treatments, he was asked to speak at an ESPN event and talk about his struggle. Never, ever give up, he said to his audience. And before he died, he established a foundation for cancer research that still raises a ton of money every year to help find a cure. I found it interesting, though, to hear what the author of the article said in talking about Valvano's legacy. Listen to this. He says, so why does Valvano's inspirational speech matter today? His speech and his outlook on life matter today because he taught us all how to live life well. Although he knew his time was short, he advised all of us that we needed to remember to laugh, to think, and to have our emotions move to tears either through happiness or joy. In other words, Valvano's inspirational passing created a pattern of living for those that were inspired by him. And this is what we think leaders, religious leaders especially, ought to do. They lived how they did. They faced their death bravely, stoically. And we should do the same. Look to their example and live a fulfilled life. (laughs) Here's the question, though. Why would anyone look at Jesus here at the end of his life and say, I want to follow that. I I want that life. Why would anyone say that? 
Well, to answer this question, you have to get the larger picture here because my premise this morning is that we are moved to follow Jesus as he comes to uh, to us in these accounts, not because we pity him, I grew up in a religious context where, you know, I was exposed to all kinds of presentations about Jesus' death precisely on these terms. I mean, look at poor Jesus there. Don't you see how sad he is to die for your sins? You should treat him so much better than you do. You should be so much more obedient than you are. (laughs) It's amazing how passive-aggressive even religious instruction uh, can kind of get. But pity is not what these passages are trying to elicit from us. Rather, I want to suggest this morning that what's happening in these verses is that Jesus, again, is taking something on. He's enacting something. Jesus is executing the terms of a contract made between he and his heavenly father from before the foundations of the earth. And if you don't keep that in mind, this larger context of the story, you're going to severely miss the meaning of this passage. We use the phrase, he died for our sins, in a real overused way, that we've almost lost what it actually means. But I'm going to try to put it in a sentence. Jesus is wrapping himself in your greatest fears so that he can absorb it, so that he can neutralize it, and in the end, keep you from having to face its depths. And you know what the greatest fear is, don't you? It's abandonment. The whole theme of this passage here is one of abandonment, one of being left alone, being forsaken. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, you do see Jesus at his most pitiful, without question. But it's not pity that makes us follow him. It's only as we see him bearing what we are in his own person that the cross takes on meaning for us. So two simple points this morning. We need to see how Jesus was abandoned by hope, and secondly, how he was abandoned by his friends. Two points. Number one, abandoned by hope. Look, the picture that you get here of Jesus is puzzling to skeptics. The passage goes like this. Jesus leaves Jerusalem after the day's business to this little rise in the land just to the east of Jerusalem uh, that was sort of speckled with olive groves, so much so that it became known as the Mount of Olives, maybe a quarter of a mile across um, across the Kidron Valley. And so much so, during that time, we knew that it was Passover, And because it's Passover, it would have meant that thousands of people have flooded the city into like three times its size. So they would camp on the outsides of the city, a little bit like our RV parks on game day weekends here in Oxford, right? And so Jesus withdraws to to this place with his closest followers so he can get ready for what's to come. The other parallel passages tell us that Jesus was taking Peter and James and John to a nearby garden so that he can pray. Well, when he gets there... Jesus has what really can only be described as an emotional breakdown. Um, He asks his father if there's any other way that we can pull this whole thing together. And the stress that begins to build up in his body is so acute that the capillaries in his skin start to burst and mix with his sweat. Even an angel has to show up to help him get through the entire event. This is my point. You're not reading this passage with the eye of the original readers, if you think that, it's, that this, is, this ending is like an inspirational moment in Jesus' life. No, no, this is bizarre behavior for someone who has been astoundingly confident up until this time. Why are we following a man who gets to the apex of his career and is seemingly sniffling and begging for a way out? 
Truthfully, even if you do a cursory study of Christian martyrs, you're actually going to find that Jesus's followers died much more horrible deaths than he did. And with the much more suffering, I heard a pastor one time tell a story about two martyrs of the Protestant Reformation named Ridley and Latimer. They're famous because of what Latimer says to Ridley as they are lashed to a post ready to be burned at the stake. And Latimer looks over and says, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We love that story because it sort of sends chills up your spine for the heroism. But Jesus, he's coming to pieces. Notice one thing, Jesus is on the ground. You know, it was customary during that day for rabbis when they prayed to stand up, but Jesus is flat on his face. Well, what is it that's knocked the Son of God to the ground? <laughs> what is Jesus so afraid of? Something, something has spooked him. Something has jarred him, and he was reeling. What was it? Well, fortunately, Jesus tells us in verse 42. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus is afraid of the cup. Now, what, do we, what, what does that mean? Well, remember our Bible study practices. When you look at a word that you're not sure what it means, you don't go with your common sense. You go with the way that word is used in other places in Scripture. And as it turns out, in the Old Testament, this cup is spoken of in two places, once in Isaiah and another in Ezekiel. I'm going to read the Ezekiel passage from Ezekiel 22, verse 32 through 35. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord... You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your chest. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. Goodness, there it is. The cup is the consequences of our lewdness and whoring. It's God's hatred of sin and rebellion. The cup is filled to the brim with God's disgust and his horror over human rebellion. Which I realize when you say in a group of, group of evangelicals like we are right here, oftentimes gets us imagining, you know, like, why is God so angry at my, little, uh, my little, uh, little peccadillos, my little white lies and such? But look, don't neuter a passage that way, because human rebellion and idolatry, especially in the Old Testament, result in all manner of suffering and injustice and oppression even sometimes to child sacrifice among his own people. No, 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 no. <laughs> God has plenty of reason to be disgusted. And the point of the Ezekiel passage is he's taken that disgust and he's put it in a cup. And it's sitting there. But again, that doesn't frame the passage completely. Because the one who is sliding the cup across the table is not Jesus' enemy, but it's his father. Look, there's so many others who have uh, said this better than I can because we have finally arrived at the heart of what crushes Jesus. Listen to Bill Lane on this. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety that Jesus Christ experienced in the prayer for the passing of the cup was not just an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor of a shrinking from the prospect of the physical sufferings that waited for him. 
It is rather the horror of one who lived a holy life for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opening up before him. I mean, think of it. Every single other time that Jesus prayed, he was welcomed with the warmth and joy and affection that his Father would lavish upon him. But the one time when he needs that strength the most, he bows his head and he doesn't see love and delight, but he smells the smell of death. Perhaps Jesus was hoping that the Father had found another way, like he did through Abraham's aborted child sacrifice of Isaac, who found a ram in a thicket cut by his thorns that would be a replacement. So maybe Jesus wouldn't have to go through what's coming. Look, here's the point. The great fact of the Garden of Gethsemane is no one has ever known grief like this. The hymn writer asked that question, was there ever grief like this? And the answer is no. No one has been through what Jesus went through in this moment. Granted, there'd be many of Jesus' followers that would face more terrifying deaths, more, more dreadful ways of torture, yes. But theologically speaking, Jesus was experiencing something that no one had ever experienced or ever would. New Testament theologian uh, Donald McLeod wrote a passage in his book on the person of Christ about the Garden of Gethsemane, about just what Jesus was experiencing. And I'm going to warn you that this passage was so... I know it's terrible pedagogy to read to you, but I'm going to do my best with it. Um, This passage will come up again. (laughs) Give, Give me any number of years... Uh, as your pastor, and I will read this again for you before, but this is, this is what he talks about of Jesus in the garden. He says, it's clear from all accounts that Jesus' experience of turmoil and anguish was both real and profound. His sorrow was as great as a man could bear. His fear convulsive. His astonishment very near paralyzing. He came within a hair of breakdown. He faced the will of God as raw holiness in its most acute form, and it terrified him. Long ago at his baptism, he had publicly embraced the messianic role, identifying himself totally with his people. In the temptations in the desert, he had already faced some of the implications of his position as the enemy quickly unleashed three massive assaults. But the full implication of being the servant and the ransom dawned on him only gradually. As he reflected on the scriptures and observed the work of sin in the world and communed with his father, but in the garden of Gethsemane, the whole terrible truth strikes home. The hour of reckoning has come. Now is the last moment to escape and beyond it there can be no turning back. When Moses saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai, so terrifying was the sight that he trembled with fear. But that was God in covenant, God in grace. What Christ saw in Gethsemane was God with the sword raised. The sight was unbearable. In a few short hours, he would stand before that God answering for the sin of the world. Indeed, identified with the sin of the world. He would become, as Luther said, the greatest sinner that ever was. Consequently, to quote Luther again, no one ever feared death so much as this man. He feared it because for him, death was no sleep, but the wages of sin. Death with the sting. Death unmodified and unmitigated. 
Death as involving all that sin deserved. He alone would face it without a covering, providing by his very dying the only covering for the world. But doing so as a holocaust, totally exposed to God's hatred of sin. And he would face death without God, deprived of the one solace and the one resource that had always been there. Listen to this. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. As a child, I was scarred by a scene from a TV miniseries that we watched one time called Masada. The story told about a group of Jewish zealots who on the run from the Roman army had holed themselves up in this literally unassailable fortress on a high mountain called Masada. Well, the Roman army spent months trying to build an enormous ramp up the side of the mountain to finally destroy the rebels. But the night before the decisive battle was supposed to take place, every one of the Jews made a decision to commit mass suicide rather than be taken by the Romans. And the most painful scene of that movie remains etched forever in my mind as the leader of the whole group walks towards a drawer and grabs a knife and looks painfully at his wife and nine-year-old son. The wife looks at him and says, there is time. But in tears, he shakes his head no. And the scene cuts to a commercial as the camera draws in on the face of this boy watching his father approach him with the instrument of death in his hands. And it's the nearest emotional impact I can get to this idea that in the garden, the rug is pulled out from under Jesus as he looks to his father and sees him approaching with wrath and violence. And even Jesus, as a fully human man, shuddered underneath it. I realize there's some people in this room that need help identifying with Jesus sometimes, but others of you know all too well. What it's like when the rug of life kind of gets yanked out from underneath you and you're not exactly sure what you're ever going to do. It's not imaginary in Jesus' world. (laughs) It's all too real. So Jesus was abandoned by hope in the garden. But secondly, he was abandoned by his friends. (laughs) I mean, it's as if we're going to sort of incarnate or embody the spiritual abandonment before his father with the actual abandonment of two, two of his closest friends, Judas and Peter. Let's start with Judas. You know, Judas marches up and you can see his amazing duplicity, which of course Jesus immediately explodes. You know, seriously, Judas, this is how you're going to do this? By going through the motions of affection while you betray me? And in verse 49, you have the disciples reacting as if on cue to their own particular worldview of what Jesus was doing, which had to do with political overthrow. They thought this was, it was time. Back actually in verse 38, we didn't have time to read it this morning. But the disciples were telling Jesus, we only have two swords. And Jesus says, that'll be plenty. Can you imagine what they were thinking? This is going to be great. We're going to march in there. This is the most powerful man we've ever seen. And he's going he's to blow them all away with just two swords. It's like a dare. But instead, he immediately shuts their little mini revolution down heals the first victim of the sword attack, and gives himself to what he says in verse 53, 
is the power of darkness. Look, think for a moment about how much worse it is to be attacked by an, a friend uh, th- than an enemy. <laughs> um, the more someone loves you, the greater the wrong when betrayed by that person. You know, when uh, preacher types like myself get together, we'll talk about the fact that, you know, if a stranger walks into church and comes up to me afterwards and says, I hated this service today, that might be slightly annoying. If a longtime elder came up to me and said, I, I hated the service this morning, that, that actually would, that, that would just sting a little bit right there. But if my wife comes up to me <laughs> and says, I hated the service this morning, that one goes kind of deep. Because the pain of an event slides up the scale parallel to the closeness of the friend inflicting it. So Jesus' betrayal kiss gives us this vivid picture of sin because lots of folks have such a problem with this story because they don't understand why Jesus is putting himself through all this drama. But for someone to say that means that they haven't thought very carefully about how the Bible depicts sin. Because all sin committed against a loving God is not the breaking of an arbitrary rule, but the breaking of a loving father's heart. We talked about last week about how all forgiveness involves pain. There's no way just to let something go. If someone wrongs you, there's only two choices. You can internalize the bitterness and grow very shortly into a hardened, very angry person. Or secondly, you can absorb the pain yourself and determine to forgive and live with that hurt on the inside. Either way, forgiveness is costly. It hurts. All offenses create a debt that has to be absorbed by someone. But when it's a friend, when it's someone close to you who's traveled with you for the last three years, Jesus helps us see exactly what the enormity of the betrayal was like in Judas. But in Peter, we actually see a glimmer of hope. Every single gospel records Peter's three denials, but only in this gospel do we find out something new in verse 61. Did you see it? Because when Peter utters his last curse word, denying his leader, Jesus looks at him. What must that have been like? Because somewhere in that exchange, Peter breaks and he goes away and he weeps. And I think here's where you see the real difference between Judas and Peter. And most folks actually miss this because both of them are betrayers. And actually, if you think about it, all the disciples betrayed him that night. Do you remember sitting around the the Lord's table last week? They all ask each other, is it me? Am I the one who's going to betray him? Everybody knew that they had betrayal inside of their hearts if they didn't think they were capable of it. No, what, what separates Peter from Judas is not that he's better than him, but two things actually separates him. The first thing that Peter does is the text says that he remembers Jesus' words. It always starts there, by the way. <laughs> you know, whenever we begin to deal with what happens as we sense the abandonment coming even in our own lives is you've got to go back to Jesus' words. Even when they sting. It's one of the reasons why in this church we center everything that we do on Scripture. Because in the end, that's the only thing that we really have. That we start our healing there. So Peter had a word of hope before and he started to use it. But the second thing Peter did is he repented. He started by saying he was sorry. And his bitter weeping was the real starting point. That honestly, it's all you really have. With humility, you've got somewhere to go. With pride, you're stuck. 
You can wallow in your misery. Australian novelist uh, Craig Sylvie once said, Sorrow is a question that begs forgiveness because the metronome of a good heart will not settle until things are right and true. Sorry doesn't take things back, but it pushes things forward. It bridges the gap. Sorry is a sacrament. It's an offering. It's a gift. And so Peter learned the posture of the Christian life must be one of repentance. The posture is not doing your best to avoid betrayal. Why? Because the judge of all the earth knows that we're already unfaithful from the start. But learning to repent well and allow the heartbreak that washes over us when we see that we are wrong, that's the way home. Always. (laughs) Always. It might even be what's at the heart of your relationship struggles right now. Is it always someone else's fault in your world? I was watching a movie last week where the main character said at one point, you know, I can't go on apologizing all my life. And his sister looks up and goes, you know what? I think just the once would do. We think we say we're sorry, but do we? We think people understand our sincerity, but have we ever really humbled ourselves to them? Now, here's the question. What is it that gives us the power to repent the way Peter did? I think in short, Peter can repent because he knows that Jesus is a restorer. (laughs) He knows enough about him to know that he's going to do something. And we find out what he did at the end of John chapter 21, where Jesus has risen from the dead and he looks at him and he asks him, do you love me, Peter? Guess how many times he asks him to answer that question? Three times. See what Jesus is doing? He's giving Peter (laughs) something tangible that he can respond to his denials. What a wonderful counselor. And what a great metaphor for what the whole of what Jesus is doing here in Gethsemane. Jesus is not tap dancing on our guilt to pry obedience out of us. He's wooing us by taking the bullet of the pain and the abandonment that we're deathly afraid of bearing ourselves. This is an entirely different way of looking at the beginning of his sufferings in these next few days. <clears throat> so I'm ready to let the cat out of the bag. I'm not a fan of those, of those Jesus films. And there's a couple reasons for this, but at the heart of my ambivalence is that those movies tend to get overly preoccupied with Jesus' physical sufferings. But as we're actually going to see in the next two weeks, it was what that went on between Jesus and his father that's the real story of his passion. We are not instructed here to feel sorry for Jesus' pain. We are supposed to be galvanized because of what he sacrificed on our behalf. And for me, that just makes this passage an entirely different kind of invitation, doesn't it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you give us that very invitation? Would you draw us unto yourself, even as we come around this table, a table of welcome, a table of like living and being and drawing near to you? Would you draw all of us to to yourself? Help us, Father, repent in the way in which Peter did. We're all capable of what Judas did, every one of us. We pray that you would accept us back because of what you have said in your word. We ask that this happen in Jesus' name. Amen.